So, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Zero Ambitions podcast. This is another episode where we talk about sustainability, net zero goals and the built environment, all the usual things. Uh, we met Nathan Gambling of the Beta Talk podcast and the Beta Teach platform. He's a vastly experienced heating engineer and a great communicator. It was me, Dan, Duncan, Sarah, and Alex. Sadly, Rachel and Jeff couldn't make it on the day. But yeah, it's a bit of a long one. We half did intros at some point. Uh, we started getting into it straight away, so we missed an opportunity. I'm sure we'll get better at that eventually. Anyway, we got to talk about the value of heating engineering, not just heating technology, optimization of existing systems and how important that is for ensuring a, a transition to net zero. We spoke about the challenges associated with identifying competent suppliers, and we did a bit about training and a tiny bit about diversity. It was a lot of stuff. Anyway, uh, I'll get on with the podcast there. Yeah, how you been? Oh, it's all good here. It's lovely and sunny. It's a beautiful day today, actually. Where are you, Nathan? I'm Ipswich, so on the East Coast. Yeah, I was so, looking at uh, my window going, it's not sunny here. It's very grey, windy, blustery. And where are you? In Finsbury Park. Oh, what, North London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nice. You get to hear all the music. <laughs> hmm, is it nice? It only happens a couple of days. Actually, we hear some stuff come across the wind from Finsbury Park, and the majority of it is is, is pretty all right. But for people who live right up against the park, I think it's a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> so, I suppose it depends who's playing as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Did you guys? Uh, did you guys? Was it you guys who interviewed Leia and Joe? Yeah. yeah, we did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, brilliant. Put it. I've, I've put the link somewhere to listen to it. I haven't listened to it. I don't get a lot of time to listen to other people's podcasts, <laughs> ironically, but I'll have to listen to that one. Oh, yeah. Well, you got a, a shout out in that record. We got to reference some of the conversation that we'd been having because it's all like thematically the same things keep coming up again and again. <laughs> like uh, in terms of today's chat, we were hoping, I mean, to talk again about uh training diversity how we can find the right sort of people so again it's almost in terms of accessibility i mean that was what you were you were aiming at wasn't it sarah yeah and i was also interested so i listened to your um fabric first not always episode this morning as i was going to eye-wateringly early meeting um and because i'm doing a bit of work around fabric first stuff with Duncan at the minute. The thing that I was really interested to hear a little bit about is your background in sort of the, like the psychology of teaching and actually delivering that in a way that's meaningful that people get. And um, I was also really super interested in what you were talking about around um, the needs for these certification bodies or not, because I think we could do it out as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm just going to grab a pen. Yeah. Work away. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing was, yeah, just your kind of views on, um, yeah, your experience, I suppose, from the inside on blasting open this um, industry, because I agree with you. I think there's a huge opportunity here for building capacity Mm. and for accessing beyond kind of like who we're currently accessing and it being a really exciting potential career path for a lot of people that they don't quite know yet if we get the story right. Just just from my perspective, Nathan, and just I agree with Sarah, and without trying to be overly negative about two bodies, but what, what I think so so we come at I I myself and Sarah, I hope Sarah doesn't mind me saying this, we primarily come at things from a fabric and a a, a, a building physics perspective. But mm. if you speak to people and include myself in this until probably listen to your show, I would have seen that MCS is a badge of quality. 
and a lot of people would look at GasSafe as a confirmation of design capabilities. Now, of course, of course, that's possibly naive in my part. I've often thought that you and I are coming at things from the same perspective in that we need better design. You just need things. You just need a better design from a fabric perspective. And you need better design from a heating perspective. Is that too simplistic, Sarah? I don't know that it's too simplistic. I think it's probably right in terms of like having that better design approach. But I think the other thing that we can't avoid and that we all have a responsibility somehow to talk about is what we can do now. So like I'm a huge fabric first proponent because I think if you are not reducing the demand as much as possible in the first instance, you shouldn't be thinking about what your heating system and solution is for that. But in the context of what we need to do now Everybody has what they have right now. Okay, I have these walls and I have that boiler, which I know has been for years running at the wrong temperature because it's only recently in the last like six months that we have started to play with that and adjust that and get to know that better. So the point around education and the dissemination of those tools in a really easy, tangible, non-scary way for the householder is like super important right now and paves the way for other low temperature heating systems that are coming whether we like it or not or whether we think the government know what they're doing um so yeah i think i am like it's definitely it's definitely that and it's in it's in education awareness and demystifying like Yeah. yeah also and this might be a subject for another day we tend to look at heating solutions either individual or or district and i wonder that so we tend to look at heat pumps in terms of like you know a, a, a semi-detached or we tend to look at district solutions for 500 1000 2000 units right but aren't we missing something isn't there something that is at block level you know four in a block six in a block eight in a block if we can get the demand side down to something that is um that's more sustainable i just wonder whether there's there's work involved that I've seen some stuff this week on social media, Kenza and people like that, but I, I just think there's that lack of knowledge around what's going on at a, at a block level as opposed to, you know, we hear all the Danish the Danish district heating at 1,000, 2,000, tens of thousands of units. And there's just something in that. Whether that's a future pod, Dan, don't know. Well, I don't know. I think it's worth like talking about because it's quite current. I don't know if you've seen Duncan posting about ground source district heating this week, like a bunch of things he's been posting on LinkedIn. Like ground source heat delivered to multiple occupancies as a means of sharing the cost across uh, a variety of properties. Like, man, that just makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're dealing with a row of terraces, like there's disruption in the backyards. But once it's disrupted, the grass grows back. You're laughing. Cost is shared. Proper interesting. The cost is shared. What, what the cost is shared for the? I mean, you could share the cost across multiple occupancies. Uh, oh, like for the initial sort of installation yeah. of four. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And the same for like a block like I live in. Sorry, Alex. No, just, just quickly, I thought I'd introduce myself because uh, we haven't met Nathan. So I thought oh, I'd just say hi. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell any I thought you'd met Nathan with Dan. No? No, 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 no. No, 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 no I haven't no, met Nathan just, either. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> we should do some introductions in. Oh, Alex, oh, go yeah. ahead. Basically, I work with Dan. So I'm the other half of everything is user experience. And uh, pretty much like Dan, just hyper focused on user-centered design and putting real people back at the center of what we do, especially what you said, Sarah, about you haven't touched your your heating system in years. And that appalls me. I think that if they haven't created a good user experience just for your heating system, that is terrible. Because uh, when we spoke to someone from UCL, they said that they hadn't seen any change in the heating patterns with, through their research through the, the pandemic. And they suspect it's not because 
you know, they were expecting higher use because everyone was at home. It's because actually no one changed the dial on their system because they don't want to break it. Yeah, it's like that Come story you talking about your granny about how so, she yeah. nearly had you strung up from trying to clutch her thermostat in case you broke her system. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, we were walking around Future Build and looking at uh, the, the heating system interface panels. And, you know, it's like a couple of postage stamps of space, four buttons to try and manage this really complex system. Well, you get the other extreme and you get this super sophisticated, massive screen as if this was the, uh, the star, Starship Enterprise, rather than something, you know, just simple with a few buttons. Like, this is on, this is off, this goes up, this goes down. You know, that's a good starting point rather than trying to create something too fancy. Well, I'd like to ask Nathan some questions about that in a second. I'm Sarah. Um, I'm an architect, but less so these days. I am a coordinator at Architects Climate Action Network. And then I'm doing some work with Duncan and the AECB around Fabric First and training. And I also run a social enterprise called HEAL, Home Energy Action Lab, which is all sort of about trying to empower households with knowledge and information about how they can take ownership of their homes and make them work better for them. So I'm all about how are we actually, how are we communicating with occupants and why should, why are we not putting more trust and knowledge and power in their hands because they're the ones who should really understand this stuff more. So like if we were to talk about good heating controls and good user interface, what do, what would be on that, Nathan? Like what are the things that we should know about our heating systems? Because I was so fascinated to hear you talk about things like modulation, other things about the background of your heating system and how it can be optimised. Yeah, well, we'll come in. Coming to controls, I mean, the control industry is a big, big component of the heat industry, a very big component. Um, I mean, if you look at someone like some of the big players like Honeywell, Honeywell have rebranded themselves to Resido, but, you know, Honeywell have been involved in all sorts of things for a long, long time. You know, they made all the landmines and cluster bombs for Vietnam War and stuff like that. They made the control systems for the planes that dropped uh, the nuclear bombs back in the day. So they've been, you know, controls... Companies are. This is it's, it's a big, big industry, and if you ask me, they've got it completely wrong. Because there's not many people I would imagine who, because uh, there's two people who are involved with UX, you know, user experience. You know, no one likes the controls. I mean, you've got the, an elderly, you know, the, the massive demographic in this country of, of baby boomers, for instance. Well, they they don't like some of them don't like digital anyway. So as soon as they see something digital, that turns switches them off. The fact you've got to press buttons to actually then get to get into an interface, no one wants to do that. I mean, if you look at the old controls, interestingly, you could go up to an old time clock and without even touching it, you knew when it was coming on and when it was going off because you pulled the little pins out. So it would revolve around and it would... So just by looking at it, you know when it's coming on, when it's going off. You don't know that with modern controls. You have to start punching buttons to get into menus and do and hold it down for so many seconds. And who wants to do that? You know, we live in a complex world already, especially you know, even with our phones. So I think the controls industry has completely gone a bit awry. It's all gone a bit too techy, thinking that's where it's got to go. And I mean, the main thing you want your heat source to do is modulate with heat demand. So the heat demand of our home constantly changes. And I don't think people appreciate that. So if it's colder outside, your home inside, and let's say, let's say people heat that to an average of 21, which is usually what they do. If it's colder outside, the heat is going to move through the fabric quicker. So it's constantly changing dependent, you know, if I need eight kilowatts of power, which is 8,000 joules per second, when it's minus three outside, if it's zero, I only need seven kilowatts of power. If it was, uh, if it was, let's say, let's get my maths right. If it was, if it was 10 degrees outside, I'd only need 3.6 kilowatts. 
So it constantly changes. Now, you'll get people constantly talk about the fact that we need hot radiators and they'll say, oh, we need 75 degrees flow or we need these high temperature heat pumps because we need it. Well, you need to really realise and appreciate t- the temperature you need constantly changes. It's all dependent on how quick the heat is moving out of your building and that's dependent on the outside temperature, which, as we know, constantly changes. Usually goes down at night. So heat sources have been able to modulate for a long time, whether it's a boiler or a heat pump. And we've got controls. I mean, if you look at British Gas, and people are looking at British Gas, I think even lawyers are now looking at these things, because you've got someone that sells us gas. They also put in boilers that use the gas. They own a controls company. They own Hive. Now, Hive might have geofencing. It might be able to turn off with your mobile phone, but it's just an on-off stack. It doesn't modulate the boiler. So that doesn't really make sense. So we've got this equipment going in and, you know, people are talking about, you know, you've got fuel bills rising. People are paying a lot more than they should be because this stuff should be going in as optimal as possible. Yes, you can get to a stage where, you know, how optimum do you get it? You know, then it needs to be sort of a bit of a common sense approach. But we are literally just putting borders on the wall and just leaving. And that's been going on for a long time. So the two biggest installation companies in the country are um, uh, Boxed and British Gas. And they aren't worried about what's controlling your boiler. They're just putting them on. And the thing they're saying to the consumer is these are efficient boilers. Well, yeah, well, they are if they're working with an efficient system. It's just heating is a system. It's not just the heat source. So, yeah, controls. controls in. I mean, the perfect control for a user is, is something that they don't really have to do. You know, if they walked into there and said, oh, I'm cold, the, the control would go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll turn your heat out of it. <laughs> yeah. You ain't got to touch anything. Yeah. Um, that's the perfect control because – People don't, I don't want to look at controls. I don't want to touch controls, and I'm in the industry. Uh, so, so the poor old homeowner definitely doesn't. So, no. uh, so it's got to be, there's got to be a lot of automation. Obviously, that is technical and that's quite complex, but there's got to be a lot of automation. And that's why things like weather compensation that's doing it all automatically, modulating your boiler automatically with whatever the temperature is outside. So, there's a the thing, isn't there, about like we've got so many millions of boilers on walls as you say right now so we have this existing issue that isn't going to disappear anytime soon certainly not by the winter that's coming our way and a lot of people are going to need some help or at least would benefit from help whether they know they need it or it's available to them or not and I don't know what the answer is but it seems like there's this vast almost like responsibility like a public service broadcast campaign that needs to happen you know there's a lot of there's a lot of people that could really, really seriously benefit from that, from I listened to you talking about whether or not you have got weather compensation built in or whether or not you have got the ability to modulate the system or whether you know that you can just turn down, you know, the heat flow, temperature, all of those things, which if you've not been trying to investigate this a little bit, will be entirely alien to you. So there's like this responsibility there. Do you think that's possible? Do you think there's a way of us uh, as an industry getting information out there en masse to people that will be understood? Well, it should we? There should be, because we live in this information age where you can disseminate a message and it goes around the world in about three seconds, doesn't it? I mean, that's, mm. that's what social media does. So yeah, there should be a way that we can disseminate that message whether people uh, cognitively take it on board as much as they should. So some people are going to be able to do – some people are quite happy with going out to their boy, for instance, and, and turning down the flow temperature. Other people, you know, quite rightly, for whatever reason, uh, don't want to go near that technology. They just don't want to. And, yeah, we have to respect that. I mean, I think there's going to be a new industry or a niche, bit of a niche industry sort of uh, start where you'll get engineers go around who will optimise heating systems. 
so they'll optimize. I mean, I used to go around the country talking about heating op- optimization uh, about three, four years ago. But yeah, there's, I think there's going to be a bit of an industry where you get people go around, they'll optimize the system, maybe get it heat pump ready, give you the sort of steps you can take to get even further towards that heat pump journey. Because I mean, one, one of the things I think people have also got to realize is this transition to different technologies, whether it's solar thermal and heat, heat pumps, it is a transition. So you've got steps in between. You know, it's not just about getting from point A to point B, there's some steps in between. And the, the, the risk is obviously you know, for, for the homeowners, who do they trust? You know, the, the, any, anyone, anyone, anyone who I'm speaking to now can, can start trading as a plumber tomorrow. There's nothing to stop you all trading as a plumber tomorrow. You just got to work to building regulations, water regulations. Once you're, once you're trading, you can take on your niece, your nephew, or whoever, or, and, and put them into college as an apprentice. So you've got low experience. Your apprentice is now, you know, you're the main uh, educational, you're the main facilitator of learning. It's not the college, the college gets all the funding, but you're the main facilitator of learning for that apprentice. They're learning from someone that doesn't really know what they're doing. So apprenticeships are always, that they can actually perpetuate bad practice. So we're in this situation where we've got this loads and loads of people out there trading as plumbers and heating engineers, and no one knows who's competent or not. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes there's unconscious incompetence. So sometimes the actual engineer doesn't know they're incompetent. You know, they might know that they can safely put boilers in, but they don't know anything about heat loss and and and, and other stuff. Now that then that that doesn't take. Uh, some of them will actually would want to learn. So we need to inspire and encourage them to learn. You know, Learning isn't about going and listening to a lecture like me and this, this miraculous thing of knowledge transfer from my brain to their brain. It doesn't happen like that. Learning is The ownership of learning is always on the learner. You know, if you want to be the world's best footballer or violinist or piano, you've got to start practising. <laughs> you don't just go to someone and they talk about the piano and then all of a sudden you become world a famous pianist. You, you have to put in the practice. And it's the same with us. We have to constantly talk about the knowledge with our peers, with experts, with mentors. We have to keep chatting about it and and so the, the, the ownership of learning is on us. It's never on a course. And unfortunately, a lot of adults think if they go on a course, some, some reckless thing happens in the brain where they know it all now and they've got the ticket, they go out and do it. You've always got to constantly strive to sort of understand the knowledge you're, you're, you're around. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's going to be a niche industry startup about optimising systems. <clears throat> it's just for the consumer. They're going to need to know who's – because there's a lot of bullshit in our industry and there'll be engineers going around saying, yeah, I can do this, do this. and you know, they're not doing a lot. Yeah. But there's two things that you brought up there. So upskilling for a just transition is something that's talked about a lot. And what we don't want to see happen, which is the kind of message that's coming out from the government, which is like, oh, we're all going to be into heat pumps now. So forget about boilers are bad and get rid of all of that. And then all of these plumbers and, and boiler engineers and everybody else, like, are they going to be out of a job? So it's important to not allow that to happen and so a just transition can be quite subtle as well about who we're talking about when but this like seems like a golden opportunity to like assist with that just transition which is some required cpd of understanding how to optimize those systems as as well as trying to encourage new people into that to be part of this transition and the other one is there's going to be an issue then isn't there between learning and needing the information but there's also a massive need for people to like not be quite so tortured this winter and that's I suppose where the responsibility of the government comes in to look after people who cannot look after themselves or don't know that that is something that they can benefit from um yeah but I mean you're right it's interesting we talk about heat pumps a lot 
We all do, because heat pumps are a magic bullet. They're not, it ain't going to happen. We know it's not going to happen. We've said it before. There's not enough supply side. There's not enough demand side. There's not enough money going around. Like I listened to your podcast, Nathan, Better Talk. Your guys, you had that, that sort of round table, the group session where you were all talking about the big boys potentially coming in and swallowing up all of the available money quite quickly. And then when all those all that, that grant money's gone, it's gone. And you haven't necessarily changed the industry. Some big companies have come in and they've done a great job and then the industry stalls. And what you've highlighted about systems design, optimising existing heating systems to work better, to work more efficiently. I mean, that's an absolute must that just isn't being addressed anywhere, really peculiarly. Like if we go back to Lisa Pasquale when we had her on, she was talking about the bad advice that she got for uh, changing things in her house, you know, the wrong pipe diameters, the wrong size of boiler, all of this stuff. And if you haven't got enough people who are qualified enough to be able to advise on that, how do we mitigate that gap? Obviously, it all comes down to education and training and that. And I, I love what you've got to say on this, Nathan. We've had this conversation well, before. I think, I think people are starting to realise that it's it's a, a very complex. I mean, I don't, I don't want to use the word trade because it's not a trade. You know, and this is the trouble. You know, we, we get associated with trades, you know, and, and I've got, you know, what makes that a plaster is bricklayers, but that's a trade. You know, within our industry, this is with, you know, the movement of heat and energy is complex. You know, you can really go down the, uh, the rabbit hole with energy. You really can. And there's different sort of niches. So there's, you know, there's engineers who can fix boilers really well. Right? They can fix boilers really well, but they probably wouldn't really know much about the system and how it would be optimised and things like flow rates and, and, and energy movement. You've then got engineers that are really good with installation. You know, They're very good with doing installation quickly. They can do the design, but they probably aren't great at fixing boilers. You know, they probably can't go. And there's a lot of boiler models out there, trust me. So you know, they probably wouldn't go in and think, oh, I know what's wrong with that. It's this, 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 and this. But they're great with putting in new systems. You've then got people that are going to be great with designing because a lot of the time it's the math side of things for heat pumps. But then one, one of the most overlooked things uh, with installation is you can be the best. I mean, everyone thinks my industry is about uh, soldering or bending pipe and design. <laughs> but you, you're in a person's home. Now, these homes are built with fabric. And as, as Duncan will know, you know, there's all sorts of fabrics that houses have been built in all different sorts of ways. Having a very good understanding of how a building is, and, and so in Sarah's, having a very good understanding as how a building's been put together. So when you look at it, you actually think, oh, yeah, I can't run pipes through there because that wall ain't going to be suitable. And I ain't going to drill holes through that because that's not going to be suitable. And this is tacit knowledge. And you can't, sometimes can't, it definitely doesn't get taught in college. You know, they, they get taught out of things like solder and bend pipe and rah rah and maybe drill a few holes through different types of walls. But that's completely different to going into someone's home. You know, you can go into someone's home and immediately without putting up carpet, no, you know, there's a glue chipboard or there's floorboards and you know which way the floorboards are running. You're going to be able to do that to keep your job simple. And in someone else's house, it's going to take a lot of hours. And then people query, why, why, is, why is that, that money costing me so much in this home? And, not? and it's because of this tacit knowledge because homes are so, so different. This is a very big skill. And this, this comes with experience of being around fabric. Uh, so yes we're going to be able to teach people to sort of transition into this industry especially with design I mean does a lot of the design is maths getting the pipe size and right but then it comes down to well can I run that pipe size because most people probably don't know that you know there's building regulations part eight that says you can't you know you can't notch a joist more than an eighth of the actual uh, height of a joist 
So, you know, you're not going to get anything over 28 mil down that particular joist. And so what, what are you going to do? Where are you going to run these pipes? That then comes down to all this tacit knowledge. And sometimes that is, you can't just teach that knowledge. It has to be kind of learned over time because buildings are complex. You know, we live in a very heterogeneous sort of build. You know, we've got buildings that are older than the colonisation of Australia and America. You know, I grew up in one of them. But you know, they're very complex, these buildings, some of them. So, uh, so yeah, so I think people have got to realise our industry is facets within it. There's going to be people that are good at repairing stuff, people that are going to be installing stuff, people that are good at surveying stuff. So they're the ones that know all this stuff about the building. I worry about the surveying side because that's sort of the more the retrofit side. So we've got all this past 2035, whatever. And if you look at who's transitioning into that industry to survey, it's, it's people like doing the domestic energy assessors. They're that sort of transition. Not being disrespectful for them, but none of them have worked on building sites. None of them have been around buildings. And anyone that has been around buildings, like Sarah and Duncan, builders are complex. You can't just learn this stuff from PowerPoints and pay like two grand to go on a course and learn stuff. You just can't. You can't. So that's so that surveying aspect, which is very important, is probably one of the hardest things out there to get right. It is. And also, I think it's an invisible bit of work because it's like the great pause. This comes up as a theme in lots of the stuff that we talk about, which I think is an absolutely necessary part of any transition that we're making, whether we're talking about retrofit, changing your heating system or anything. My question, my first question is always, do you know how your building works? Do you know how your building works? Have you done an assessment? Your assessment is not just a measured survey of the room. And it's not massively complex either. Like in a way, like there are some survey skills and tools that you can have to understand how a building might be put together to allow you to make certain assumptions. And then maybe there's a decision made that whether or not you need to do more for like investigations that involve like little opening ups or whatnot to get a better sense of it. But that is absolutely key. And we don't have a standard for assessment, for building assessments yet. Like we've got the role of the coordinator, the retrofit coordinator out there. And like people are doing retrofit assessments, but there's actually a standard for that, like proper kind of guidance out there for what sorts of things you should be looking at. And I share your concern about that part of it. And it's the most difficult part to get anybody to commit to because it doesn't look like you're doing anything. It's much easier to say to building owners like, whack in a load of heat pumps and you've got yeah but you still haven't addressed any of your problems Mm. you still haven't understood your building you still haven't understood whether this was actually a good idea or not and it's like taking that moment like you know councils around the country are like what are we going to do we need to do stuff around retrofitting our building stock beyond just general maintenance do you know your building stock and you've got to be willing to invest in some time and energy in really like taking stock of that this is all managing risk like so that you're not locked into doing stupid things that prevent you from doing other things or that worse damage the building or the occupant's health. Like, this is my bugbear. This gets me so angry, like, all the time. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, because um, I agree, I think, with with what Nathan said about, um, you know, a lot of the eco-surveys that, that are being done just now and, and the qualifications or the experience that those people have is, is questionable. But also, it generally is a predetermined survey, and that it is it is for already something that is wants to be planned. Yeah, it's not an objective assessment in the sense that what do I have to do here? Usually, these surveys are carried out because a specific measure has already been identified through grant funding, and that's a bit of a concern. So you're already pushing something rather than looking at an objective survey. So I suppose, and it's, this came up with the conversation we had with Leah and uh, and Joe last week, is, is is there some objective survey that is done, is what Sarah's saying, as part of the pause, is what should we do here, rather than a predetermined survey, which is, which is already looking at a measure, 
um, whether it's local authority led or, or, or so on. What, one question, just to go back, because there's a lot of people that listen to us will probably come from a fabric first background, architectural background. And I know it's a naive question, but we will look at MCS, certainly the badge of quality around. This is from my perspective, although I've listened to your show, but people would think about MCS and the qualification that that, that would have in terms of delivering renewables and also gas save. Are, are those are those two qualifications, if that's if that's the proper term? Sorry, Dan. Just before you go on, what is MCS? Like, I'm ah. dummy here. Well, MCS is the Micro Certificate Generation Scheme uh, set up by the government back in, oh, I'm going to say 2011. I might have got that totally wrong. Um, so basically, when government was is going to grant money for people to have heating systems, um, you know, it doesn't just want to waste taxpayers' money, although it often does. <laughs> and so MCS was set up as you had to be accredited with MCS as an installation company to be able to do that work. It's not government run now. It's uh, obviously MCS uh, is its own limited company. It sits underneath or has a charity association with it as well. So it's accreditation. So you can kind of liken it to gas safe. So gas safe in the plumbing heat industry is kind of the only licensed I mean, everyone says you should. Be, we need a plumbing license. Oh, that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> but um, so, gas safe is a license. You have to have gas safe accreditation to work on gas appliances. Now, that doesn't mean you're competent because it's not hard to go out and get that, and everyone kind of gets passed. Uh, so, MCS is similar. So, if you, uh, you you don't have to be MCS to put in heat pump systems, but you do have to be MCS to put in heat pump systems if they're getting a grant. And it's not a qualification to get MCS accreditation. You have to get a qualification. So you'll get something like a BPEC qualification or an LCL qualification. Once again, everyone goes and passes. So let's say we all here want to start up a heat pump installation company, uh, which we can all do. What they will be looking at is if we've got a good quality management system. Uh, they'll be looking that we've got our insurances. We'll have to be belong to a consumer code insurance like REC. And then someone will have to have the qualification for the particular technology. So let's say we want to be putting batteries in. We might send Duncan off to go and do the BPEC of battery, uh, battery installation. And PV will send Alex off to go and do P. And they become the sort of a, the certified engineers. And then our company gets accredited. Now, Duncan might ring me up tomorrow and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the company now. So he might go off. He's got the qualification for whatever we put them on, whether it's batteries or heat pumps. He's now gone. We're still an accredited company. And I can, we can use whoever we want. We can ring up Joe Bloggs down the road as a planner. Oh, can you do some work for me? So I always argue, and the MCS, I'll get on well. They used to sponsor my podcast. But there's absolutely no way you can tell whether someone's competent just because they're on that register. Just the same as you can't tell anyone who's is competent just because they're on the gas safe register. It should do. I mean, ideally, that's what we wanted to do, but it doesn't. Now, they do get audited, but they don't get audited by MCS. They get audited by the UCAS bodies. So mm-hmm. the UCAS certification bodies associated with heat pumps, for instance, will be people like uh, the APHC, Association of Plumbing and Heat Contractors, Oftec, which is your fired association, NAPIT, NICE. There's seven of them, I think. They do the auditing work. There's historical problems with them because you might have had an assessor that was very good at assessing PV that's now out assessing heat pump installations who hasn't got a bloody clue what they're looking at. So... There's a problem with that auditing process as well. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's big problems. And once again, poor old consumer has got no idea who's competent. No I, think, I think that's it. I think, I think, you know, we talk about the work that we want to do within reducing demand within fabric improvements. But I think you're right. The, the consumer doesn't understand the dynamic here. And even to me, who 
you know, is supposed to know what they're talking about. Uh, listening to you over the last year or so, you know, a couple of times I've been like, God, really? Mm. Um, so this is this is fascinating, but but also scary. And I guess the question is: Is there reform? How do you reform? How do you improve? So the, the how do you how do you get people trained up and and engage in the body of knowledge that they need? Because clearly they do. Well, how do you train them up? Or how do you know who's competent? No, what I would say is if, if we accept the fact that there's flaws in, in both of those qualifications, both of those organisations, then yeah. how do we disseminate this information? How do we engage with the workforce that we have that, to, 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 I suppose, um, raise the bar to, to get the quality we need? Because what we talk about in our pod is about how we should design things. In it. And that's a fairly easy sell because um, what we see is the shift has to come from away from contractors delivering fabric measures and on to designers to design them. Contractors still deliver them, but they shouldn't design them. So that's a fairly easy kind of dynamic and how we have to shift shift away from that. Is that fair to say, Sarah? That's, that's my bugbear just now. Yeah, I suppose it's it's more having the, the structure in place of the whole building and system approach. And that needs to have somebody who can oversee that whole process. And that is often somebody in that kind of design and risk management well, approach. I think what's interesting is like, we just keep saying complexity again and again and again. And Duncan, you were calling before for like, is there an objective survey that could be undertaken? But what Nathan said is he suggested that that's a fallacious idea because like, you have to take a subjective survey because you're dealing with the thing that's in front of you. And it could be down to typology or period, or if you know the actual contractor that built it and what sort of standards they may or may not have built to at, at that point in time. And you, you have to come in with that sort of knowledge. Like we had a, we met up with Nathan the other week and we had a really interesting conversation about training and methods of education. And what really struck me, has been interesting. So don't. So we're talking about, well, how can consumers know what sort of standards are there? And the biggest difference, and you pick this up off us, Nathan, obviously, because you know better than I do. The biggest difference is like this sort of collectivized education, engaged learning where people learn from one another. So we talked a lot about on-the-job training being the most valuable training when you're actually hands-on with the stuff or engaged in, I don't know, proper dialogue or interacting with, with things. And this the equivalent of CPD that you run through your training, where you have like forums, people interacting with one another, sharing experience, knowledge, asking questions. Like if you could get some sort of accreditation that's in line with that, and they do it for all sorts of industries, like continued professional development, CPD is an essential aspect of lots of professions, but it's almost a bit of a meaningless one it, often because it could be just watching a YouTube video and answering half a dozen questions, which are brilliant for the video, but it's rote learning. Like, it's not practical. Yeah, CPD has been around a long time in, in, in my industry and it doesn't really do what it says on the tin. It stands for continuous professional development. Well, development means knowing where someone is on their learning journey and where they've got to get to in the next step. Well, there's not many people delivering CPD know where every individual learner is on their development and learning journey. Uh, it's now got to a stage where you just watch a webinar and you get your SIPSI points. And anyone, you, you can watch a webinar. We've not, you know, you, it might be that my computer saying my Zoom is on and I'm, at, I'm attending that webinar, but I might be outside doing the gardening. It's become a bit of a joke, it, 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 really, CPD. It doesn't really do what it says on the tin. You also mentioned something about there about on the job 
learning. Now, on-the-job learning is only relevant and worthwhile if you're learning or doing it the right way or doing it with people <laughs> yeah. the right way. And this is one of the big problems. I mean, Duncan and I spoke about something interesting. So obviously, you know, I chat to local authorities now because local authorities now have realised, they've listened to a few of my problems, they've got a big problem. That They've got multi-million pound tenders. You know, it's like some of the Millions Energy Hub just been giving 85 million for 6,000 homes. You've got, I work a lot closely with Bristol City Council. You, they've, they've got sustainability teams and energy services teams who have to somehow pick these companies that are put in their tender. They've all got the same accreditations. So how do they choose them? How do they know who's competent to do the retrofit work, to do the heating systems? and that? You know, there's a because if we get it wrong, that's taxpayers' money getting wasted again. Now, Duncan and I have chatted about that. There's a authority up in Scotland, I believe, where they still have the sort of the old traditional way it used to be done in the 70s, 80s, where everyone's in the house. It's, so you've got your, your, your workers, you've got your foreman, you've got charge hands, you've got a team of designers. And with that hierarchical system, you can kind of keep a good element of control. So you might only need it couple of, of women or men that have got really good surveying knowledge. So they go out and they serve a cohort of properties and you've got the design team, they design it. And then you've got the charge ends. They know the fabric. They know exactly how things can be done from the design. Because sometimes it's all very well getting the design wrong. But if, if people don't really know how to look at that design, and because they might just see, they might see a joist and think, oh, sorry, there's a, there's a steel there. We've got to get around that steel. And it don't, the designers didn't know about it. We'll do this. And, and then all of a sudden you've gone off track. But you'll have a foreman in place, four person in place that can then sort of mitigate that. Because at the moment, our industry is just contractors and old traders. And, you know, if we're going to scale up the deployment of these heating technologies, we might have to go back to the older models of like the 60s, 70s, where, you know, everyone was employed back in the 60s, 70s for your British gas boards and stuff like the councils. It's very hard to orchestrate this big scale up with just sole traders. And they literally are sole traders. They're, they're, They're one people band sort of thing. There and I, I, I'm smiling because um, I think you're I think you're right and I think there's a recognition that that is sort of the way we have to go because what you're describing is a one-stop shop approach and it's precisely what the Irish government have set in place as part of delivering their national retrofit scheme, which is it has to be delivered through one-stop shops because it's about the consumer experience because nobody knows where to start nobody understands I mean I have these conversations where family members all the time they're like the boiler's gone or um, I need it locked and stayed on who do I speak to first like should I go to a structural engineer and get a survey like they haven't got a clear understanding of who they should go to first so the notion that you could go to a one-stop shop and that they can make an assessment of your situation your needs your expectations your budget all of that as well as the building as well as all of that and then say to you yeah you need this that and the other and it's this combination of skills or this combination of whoever whatever that is the services that we have that you need and by the way it's supported by x y and z grant or these are the funding and financing options available to you that's i guess i don't want to be all like unicorns and bunnies about it but it seems like is that the way is that who who would run what who would run or facilitate the one-stop shop local authorities or yeah, so I think it's a mix of things. They, they're suggesting that, like, at the minute, I think this is this will be the like the proof in the pudding of the Irish retrofit scheme because though they've launched it and committed to it, it needs a couple of things in place first before it's fully actioning, and that that is the existence of these one-stop shops, of which there was maybe like a handful, and some of them are run by energy, co- not so much energy companies in the traditional form, but like organisations who would be interested in retrofit and so have their coordinators and their assessors and their contractors their installers all of that so there are 
options are like four four options within the one-stop shop approach that you can take when one's just like from the very very light touch to the whole package so like you could be a facilitator one-stop shop or you can be a full-on delivery responsibility post-occupancy the whole lot one-stop shop I think it's been around for a little while but it's been tested and run in different places it's something that has my interest at the minute so I'll do some more research and let you know (laughs) I I think that what you're describing sounds very look very much like the business that Alex and I run with regard to user experience everything is user experience I'll plug it but like we do this for you know (laughs) websites messaging marketing branding communications training change management because what we realized through applying user experience methodologies to the, the, the common or garden stuff we were doing within financial services before we moved into the low energy building industry was we were just looking at what the right thing to do is given the circumstances. So in, in those terms, in agency terms, it's what's the brief? Well, the brief in these terms is usually, well, we want it, the system to be optimized, we want it to be the most energy efficient with the best possible output. Like, all right, so who are your users? So you look at, the, in this case, the occupants of a household or a building. Like, what are their needs? You assess their needs. And Alex and I, we can do a lot of stuff ourselves, but there are a whole heap of things that we don't do, and we have partners for them. Like, we don't build websites. We hate building websites. So we have partners for doing that because they know it much better than we do. And if we had to do it ourselves, we'd have to charge a fortune because we hate doing it <laughs> and it, we know how long it takes and we don't we're not really highly skilled at that no i think i think yeah i agree with you obviously but i think the challenge is, is that it's how do you find like to use your analogy of us is that how do you how the people find the agency that they can trust who also happens to have the network of people that is also trustworthy and that's a really hard part because in the equation what we haven't talked about yet is the the homeowners or the dwellers who at the end of the day they're the ones who have to kick off the process they're the ones who have to say right i need to go on the internet do a google search and try and find someone to go and replace my my heating system and most of them will not have the foggiest idea as to what they have to to do they may have heard about um, heat pumps but they've got no idea if their building is is suitable they don't know if, how it should begin blah, blah 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 so they don't know how to ask any of the questions so what will happen is that they will be potentially unfortunately hoodwinked by the person who comes along and says i can do this for really good good money i can over promise you i'll put you an even more powerful boiler than you need because that sounds great and they'll cost you a bit more money but it's going to be better in long term when in fact it's not and i think that's the problem is how do we make sure that the people who are actually in charge of kicking off the process in the case of individual homes that they are empowered to ask the right questions or even can go maybe to some, something like uh, the analogy of the agency where they can go say, I want to start this project and who do I go and talk to? And I think that's the thing is we need to help people understand where to start their journey. It's really, I think that's what it boils down to is where do they start their journey so they don't fuck up or they don't get hoodwinked by, yeah. by the people who are going to abuse them. I mean, we rely on word of mouth. That's really small footprint stuff. Uh, and we you know we talk to a lot of people, again, really small that's why I was intrigued by uh, what you described about your CPD for the, the beta learn stuff, how you've got a community of people who gain status within the, the framework by interacting with one another and sharing knowledge because it's the sharing knowledge, like the, uh, the apprentice learning from the, the old timer on site. It's a sort of, almost an equivalent process but a lot more fluid than that because a lot of it's happening happening virtually or digitally and in person i presume well, 
Well, the, so the platform, the platform I've got is very sort of because my company is just me, so it's very, there's only about fifty people on it at the moment. I'm, I'm sort of changing iterations, and so it's, it's basically a social engagement platform where people are just constantly chatting about whether it's heat pumps, so the thermal, heat and design, district heat, and they they get accredited with digital accreditations that they can display on the website for how much engagement. So over a period of time. Sorry, Nathan, is this beta learn? So you've got beta talk, which is this is beta teach. Beta teach. Beta teach and beta talk. Um, and then I'm going to be trying. So I've got some sponsors coming on board. I might name them now, actually. So I've got the European uh, Heat Pump Association, Tardo, uh, Elemental Show, Installer Show, and uh, All Technic. They're going to sponsor some people to come onto that platform. Because, I mean, there's a couple of things. If, if I have more people on it, will it, in, will it increase engagement? But I'm also going to be, I've worked, I'm working with about six councils at the moment because they want some of their people to come on with. Now, this is a very, everyone talks about training the engineer. But our industry is big now. I mean, all you lot are talking about it. You know, I, I chat with Regen, Nesta, Energy Systems, Catapult. And you know, there's thousands of people now that are talking about our industry. And they need to up their game a little bit. You know, like I just said earlier, if you've got people in local authorities that are choosing these big tender contracts, they, they don't got to be brilliantly technical, but they have to have a good awareness. So I want to engage them on the platform so they can have their digital credentials. So when they move about, let's say they might move to another council, they might go and work for Energy Systems Catapult or Nesta, they've got proof that they're conscientious, have been conscientious enough to really get to grips and learn about this stuff, whether it's retrofit, fabric, heat, heating. Because you know this is a very, very big thing we've got to do. It's not just the engineers. In fact, actually, sometimes it's probably more important than the engineers. We, we might find some solutions to be able to quickly uh train up i mean and, and you would have had uh layer on uh last week now layer and i are involved i'm involved um with a with a group of women we're on a whatsapp group talking about gender inclusivity so m my grandfather was known as being the, the the guru of oil combustion in the uk across europe so he's been one of the most influential people about oil combustion in the 60s 70s he always said the best engineer he knew was, was this was this woman he knew. Now, that was quite unusual for someone in the 70s. And he always made a point of making that very aware because obviously men were a bit more, sorry, men, but you're a bit more chauvinistic back in them, that decade. I know you're in good company. So, so I've kind of took on that pattern. And, you know, we, of course, women are just as great engineers. And sometimes they're better problem solvers. They, they seem to be able to think in different ways than that. So... I, I chat to Leia and Rihanna and Sove a, a lot of the time about how do we get a bit more women into this industry. And I think we're at a great turning point because obviously um, the, 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 the energy transition will be a good catalyst for this. I think one of the problems we've got is our industry is framed in the wrong way. It's, it's framed as a technical, practical industry. So we're always it's always this male thing. Uh, not that males are any better than being technical and practical. It's actually a caring uh, nurturing industry you know we, we're um and helping people we're helping people have their homes healthy it's we're caring for the planet you know we're getting this we're, we're reducing emissions so if we frame it in a different way we, we can probably then attract i mean i'd argue i mean i've taught in colleges i've taught plenty of, of people in colleges and there's equal opportunity to get into that college and we actually got the oversupply we teach thousands and thousands over a hundred thousand young people join construction courses every year over a hundred thousand but there's only 20,000 apprenticeships across the whole of the construction industry every year. Mm. Probably up to about 200,000 people enrol on, on, on courses. There's just oversupply and they're getting given these rubbish certificates, sitting guilds and all the others make loads of money out of it. Colleges don't make a particular amount of profit because they've got so much overhead. But of course, 
someone like Leia, who could have a, sort of some apprentices for, for a year, two years, and the funding goes completely to her, they're going to turn out to be fantastic engineers because that's a proper apprenticeship. That's where you go with the, with the masters. That's how apprenticeships used to be. You went with someone that's actually quite competent. Like I said earlier, nowadays, anyone can take on an apprentice. Anyone anyone can be a plumber tomorrow and then take on an apprentice and send them to college. Mm. Well, that's not going to help the course. Um, so I think we need to frame the industry differently. Um, the And that comes down to this. That sort of tallies up a little bit with user experience, I think, doesn't it? Um, oh, most it definitely. It does. And I think um, you've like struck on something that um, we've talked about before as well, which is um, it isn't, yeah, it isn't just about the immediate, like, oh, how do we encourage more women or how do we do that? Or how do we, uh, how do you encourage people? You've got to step right back to like, what are the more systemic problems um, that are there? What you have the opportunity to be here. And this is where young people's interest is as well. Like if you think of the school strike for the future and all of those things, well, what is the future that I can feel like addresses the things that matter to me? If you become this excellent heating specialist who's able to optimize systems, existing systems, you're a climate hero. I think the reason that we came up with the name for HEAL, it was kind of a happy accident that it was also healed, but it was like about the home energy action lab, but the centering of the home, the place, the heart, that part of, of your life where so much important stuff happens is like talking about it as something to be nurtured, something that is worthy of being cared for, something that is worthy of having much, much more value than the cost that's assigned to either the works that you have to do or how much it's worth on the market or all of those things which are actually really damaging to our society. The opportunities are endless because we have these 29 million homes, all of whom need some sort of care. And there's great opportunity in how you can be part of that and like again I've been plugging them loads because I genuinely believe what they're doing is brilliant but Construction Scotland Innovation Centre like their offering seems to be something that people would be interested in because they're using these technologies that are engaging so like they've got hybrid learning of using virtual reality goggles as well as physical rigs and I'm thinking to myself like that's brilliant I'd love to be up there you know it's like building stuff it's like you know in virtual reality but then you know also doing it in reality and you have all of these opportunities which make it much more relevant than going around in some as I think Leah mentioned like you don't want to go around in some guy's old two-seater van on some apprentice thing like on your own like that's that's not going to do it and um, so you it don't. is that you don't but at some point you have to I mean yeah you do at some point and that's fine if it's part of it but that's not going to be the point at which you capture people's imagination is it like that's no, the bit. Yeah, you do. I mean, I've worked in uh, a simulated workshops. So when I first started teaching, I, I, I was asked to teach in the prison community. It was the first prison in the country to teach the City and Guilds uh, Level 2, 3 Plum. And it had it had a fantastic workshop. It really did. And delegations from all over the world would come and visit it because the private company I was working for, you know, worldwide. And, and everyone would come in and MPs would come into this and they go, oh, wow, it looks really good. Because, of course, they are. Well, these simulated workshops, it's like what everyone's going gaga over octopuses at the moment. I mean, they look really good to the untrained eye. But you can't teach real-life experience, well, you hardly any of it, from simulated workshops. I don't care whether you've got your Google glasses on or whatever. <laughs> you know, every home, as you know, you're an architect, you can work, walk into exactly the same 70s homes Every single one on the street is going to be different. You know, someone might have knocked down a wall. They've got an RSJ there now. Some have got all. They can be. It's completely different. Mm. You can't teach that in a workshop, simulated environment. You can no. imagine. I, I do agree, though. You can inspire. 
you can inspire and, and this imagination think oh that's an industry i want to get into and so yeah I, I agree with that what i'm really interested in is how we turn all of the what we need is this and what we have to do is that and this is the challenge and this is how we do it and these are all the papers that we have that exist and all these reports and that's great and okay, we know that, we know that, and we know what the questions are. I really like the fact that you're like, yeah, but you can't really know how to do it with your virtual reality goggles on. No, but that's the flashpoint at which you get people in and then you take it to the next level and the next level. And so you make sure that you have got points of connection with different groups and then that you actually have got a really thorough, decent apprenticeship route that you then pass people through so it's not just the easy win silver bullet bit but it's a mix of things and different ways of attracting people and then you've got to hold on to them if that works and it captures enough young people's imaginations then we we need lots more of that and we need those things because we can't suddenly materialize five hundred thousand people to help deliver this just just transition and, and whatever it is that we need sorry I'll just jump in very quickly. I think there's also another opportunity is to think about the technology we use in different ways. So yes, I, I do agree that you need that to sort of virtual reality, augmented reality to attract people within the industry. But also I think there's an opportunity of helping the industry learn how to use that technology to inspire also kind of back to my my favorite uh, uh, group of uh, audiences or stakeholders, the, the homeowners. You know, if you could go into home and give people the Google glasses to use your, your example, Nathan, and actually you could show them their own home, the comfort of their own home, and you could start drawing with your finger how the, the pipe is going to go this way, this way, and like express how the joists are put in the house, you know, things basically that they don't really need to understand, but they do need to understand because you're going to be telling them, I'm going to have to destroy parts of your kitchen to do this. That's a very, very scary experience so i think that there is also a huge advantage to be able to use that technology in completely different ways yes for training but training the people who do the work but also training the uh, the end uh, consumer so i think there's also a, a really big opportunity there as well to think differently of how we use this stuff and how we also more importantly i think it's important to teach uh, the the people in the industry how to communicate better and nathan you said it about it's the home it's somewhere where you know it's a, it's a place where you know where you're trying to give people you're creating something about the comfort of their homes. You're helping with the, the environment, etc. Yeah, communica communicating with the homeowners. Communicating, thank you. Yeah, communicating with the homeowners is, is, is really important. So in teaching that, I think that we can come from the, the, the conception that, okay, yeah, there'll be people who will be bad. They are there. But there are also going to be people who are really good, who know what they do. They come in, they repair your boiler, they assess the system, they, they set it all up. But what we do need to teach them, which I don't think they're being taught much yet, is how to explain it to the homeowners and to make them feel comfortable because they're also not only gonna, it's gonna make the job easier, but they're also gonna be the evangelists. They're gonna go out there and say, I've had such an amazing experience. We have to all do this. And they are a big part of that solution as well. Yeah, I'm a big naysayer about virtual reality. I think it's a load of old crap. It's like 3D cinema, except for Netflix. I think <laughs> Netflix and an Oculus headset's fabulous because you can sit in a small room. No, 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 you don't get to sit there and say, oh, it's great for everything except for the bit I like it for. <laughs> but I am being turned around. So Alex keeps talking about every time we have this conversation, he cites your homemade perfect. Like, do you want to... It will get used. It, it will get used actually more probably within the industry. I mean, you may have heard my uh, courses to resources episode where, you know, people think it's all about courses, where actually we just need to help people do the job, which, which tends to be a resource. So there will be a future where people are put on their augmented, not virtual reality, but augmented reality, look at a boiler and it'll come up and uh, things they're looking at. Yeah, this part number is, is this year old. This, it's, it's fouling. We've already ordered it. It's now being delivered. Um, while it's being delivered you clean out this thing so i think augmented reality will come in for for maintenance i don't know about so much about training but the interesting thing alex picked up yeah 
empathy training, obviously massively overlooked. So once again, this is tacit knowledge. Now I've got four faces in front of me on this Zoom and whether I like it or not, I have unconsciously probably started to ascertain your personalities. So if I went into each of yours homes, I would probably treat you all differently. I don't know why I'd do it. It'd be an unconscious response, but we do, you know, we're a very heterogeneous society, we're probably the most heterogeneous society on the planet. But so I would treat you all very differently about how I'd want to convey information. Because A, I've got to convey technical information. B, I've got to make you feel like, you know, so the cognitive flexibility I need is immense. Now, I, I like to think I'm lucky the way I was brought up, you know, however I was brought up, I, I'm quite a good communicator. But actually, if you ask me why I gave up plumbing and, and being on the tools, it's because I couldn't communicate to certain people that didn't value me. I struggled with the people that just moaning about money and, well, why are you more than my carpet fitter? And being able to convey, well, I know a lot bloody more than your carpet fitter. Oh, tell me about <laughs> and, it. Yeah. And I'm keeping you safe, you know, with sanitation, provision, supplying your wholesome water. But people, some people don't get that. And then I got to an age where I just couldn't be bothered anymore to c- try and communicate that with people. You know, just used to anger me. So, <laughs> so controlling, controlling emotions, being able to convey uh, information to various, a variety of people, whether it's different because of their age or their, their culture or, or whatever. That is one of the biggest skills because you're going into their homes. And, and, and this is why it's a lonely job for heating. And people say, why is heating engineers a lonely job, you know? They're meeting all these people at all the time. And, yeah, they're meeting lots and lots of people. And that's one of the taxing things on the brain. You you meet – some of these people that work for the big companies like British Gas have to meet 20 – going to 20 to 30 homes a day. And on also at a crisis point for life. That's hard. They're not, but they're yeah, not meeting people in happy circumstances. No, it's no. like when they're desperate. And, they're... and, you, and you're, you're looked at as if, you know, you're not looked at always favourably. And it's very, very hard. That's why they the engineers get on social media and use it as a release. And that's why they get all this banter and they can, it seems like they're acting childish and big, like big kids, but it's just release. Uh, yes, people in retail meet lots of people all the time face to face, but they're not in their homes. Big difference. When you go into someone's home, it's a completely big, and everyone lives very, very differently. Trust me, very differently. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very, very big, and you, how do you train for that? <laughs> I don't know if you do. You can do empathy training. Once again, I think this is where women may have the other hand. We, um, we, we want to see more gender equality in the industry. Women have got great communication, not all of them, but, you know, so, but they have generally got great communication skills, uh, empathy maybe more. So this is, another, once again, we've got to frame the industry as a caring, helping industry. Well, I think We're helping you make your, your home healthy, keeping you warm. In, in those terms, women are socialised to be more empathetic in serving other people's needs. Men are trained, you have it trained out of you, you don't need to be as considerate of other folk. And for all the men out there, it doesn't mean you're not caring, because I'm caring, but, you know, it's... it's yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting point though isn't it like it is a, it's an interesting point because we can use the circumstances that as they currently are as a point of turning things into something that's better so it can seem like you know that might get some people's back up to say like oh just because we're women doesn't mean more empathetic and yes we're more socialized to be that way and blah 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 but actually if we see the opportunity in bringing those skills into an industry that might then filter through and everybody benefits from being allowed to be more empathetic and from receiving empathy and knowing that that's normal that helps a lot that will solve a lot of problems <laughs> so I think it is a good point to make but it has to be as part of a system change as opposed to the, that's the one the solution in itself yeah yeah it's totally the system change I just think, as Nathan, this is you know a pitch in terms of the conversations we've had before. Um, 
I think what you said about the empathy is brilliant. I mean, because I look at things from a technical perspective and, and I'm always quite critical of people in my industry, surveyors, charter surveyors, people who are assessing things. So we look at things technical, we look at wood, you know, all that kind of stuff and we don't look at the, 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 the human element to it. But I think this is a shameless plug for how local authorities should engage with you because they are at the, at the cutting edge of social care. The, the majority of people in social housing have um, have more need for better systems than perhaps you know wider society. And I think that you're right. If if what you said earlier on about the, the traditional direct labour organisations that that local authorities employ, I just did a quick calculation there. I think there's 1,300 gas safe engineers working in social housing in Scotland. Surely there's a there's a plea here to local authorities because there's a lot of people listening to this in the UK, Scotland, to a local authority that, that you should be getting involved with these guys. That's surely a, a, a pitch, a plea. What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I think local authorities, so I feel sorry for local authorities because a lot of people don't really know a lot about them. They don't know about yeah, the people they're working in, and, and a lot of them do some really, really hard work. And I've been interacting with some, and they've turned heating into their hobby. And it's amazing. You know, they, they, know some, they know more about some aspects of heating than some of the engineers I know. You know, if I said to... Not that engineers always have to know what a watt is. If I said to an engineer what is a watt, they wouldn't know it's a joule per second. But if I said to some of the people I'm interacting with, you know, with local thoughts, you know, if I've got a home that needs eight kilowatts, what does that mean? Anyway? It needs 8,000 joules per second, I think. And, you know, they're starting to get this stuff. And they're passionate about it because, again, it's this, it's this nurturing um, thing, aspect. I mean, I've always called heating, heating engineers nature's, uh, what do I call them? nature's nurses, you know, because it's about helping fix this planet. And once again, that shift in the framework, I mean, it used to be about burning everything on the planet. You know, my, my, <laughs> say my grandfather was the, one of the Europe's leading oil combustion experts. And yeah, we needed to burn oil. We needed to keep warm. We needed to, we still need oil for plastic components and stuff like that. You can't just do away with it straight away. But um, yeah, the, the, the people in these local authorities and the energy hubs and the, the LEPs that are all now sort of uh, engendering is a very important, very important aspect of our industry now. And, and, of course, that's where you already find the diversity. There's already diversity there. And so if I can get them onto my platform where they're engaging about stuff, about learning about this sort of kind of stuff, you know, a year a year down the road, someone from, I don't know, someone from the local authority, let's say, let's say it's Bristol, so Nathan, we need someone that's really, really knowledgeable about solar thermal to employ. And I'll go, yeah, 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 this, these people, because they've engaged for like 600 hours about that particular topic. Because mm. uh, CPD at the moment doesn't really do anything. Qualifications don't do anything because... I mean, one one of the things I've got a bit bit sort of uh, frustrated about there's 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 and you were talking about these one stop shops. There's there's been organisations in our industry for a long time. So if you look at the NEA uh, yeah. National Energy, they've been involved with heating for forty years. Energy mm. so, Energy Savings Trust thirty years. Mm. Why didn't they know about modulation? We've got all these consumers now paying high bills. Right? Why didn't the NEA and, and Energy Savings Trust? Why have they only been giving messages about turning your thermostat down? Why didn't they know about flow temps? Why didn't they? It's been there for a long, long time. So mm. How can someone that's a charity been involved in heating for forty years and now only know this stuff? And it's frustrating because they had a conference in January, no engineers whatsoever. They had so many speakers giving speech after speech after speech, no on the ground engineers at that conference. None of them would have known what I was talking about if I said, right, what types of smart stat are there? Is a hive a smart stat? Is a tide of a smart stat? They'd be like, what do you mean? Yeah, what can modulate the border, which is what it's supposed to be? Wouldn't have had a bloody clue. And they should do. You know, these are the people that train up people in local authorities. These are the people that consumers go to. 
they should have known this stuff. Why is it only coming out now? It's 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 frustrating because we've known about it for quite a long time, us engineers, but no one was helping us disseminate the information. Mm. And, of course, what happened was then it was just a race to the bottom. The engineers that are really, really good can compete with the ones that just want to sling a baller in. So you then start to see the really, really good engineers. They retire. They don't end up doing the work as good as they could do because the customer doesn't want to pay for it. Why would a customer want to pay £500 more than Joe Boggs down the road who can hang up the wall? But I think you probably answered your own question there in a way, isn't it? Because why is why was it not an issue? It wasn't an issue because it wasn't part of the game. It wasn't part of the bigger picture. It wasn't part of what was selling. It wasn't part of where the... The they never, but they never sold the message. A charity that's been in this industry for 40 years, why won't they, when it came out, when, when condensing technology came out in 2005, why won't they getting that proper technical message out there? They Were they getting that information? Though? That's what I mean about, like, who's driving the industry? It's only science and physics. It's only science and physics. You no, got it's politics as well. It's not just science and physics. It's politics and economics. I mean, you, talk, you talked about this on your podcast. I forget his name, the UX guy, the BMX fella. Uh, oh Adam yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like you talked about the vertical integration of British gas and so they, they're doing supply side installation servicing maintenance so it is in their interest to uh, sell as much gas as possible to sell you the biggest boiler possible to maintain it as little as possible for the highest cost so you have to buy another boiler further down the line so they maximise their opportunity, which is just a revenue generation thing. Now, and they also want your boiler to break down reasonably regularly because that's when they have their cover and So when I met the, the mother of my daughter, she was paying £440 to British Gas per year for their cover. £440. I could buy a new boiler for every two years. And that was supposed to cover breakdown and servicing. They want service. The boiler hadn't been serviced in two years, and they don't service anyway. This is the thing. They do a safety check. They just stick a flue gas analyzer on FGE in and make sure it's safe combustion. They don't service it. So what happens is in boilers then do tend to break down a lot quicker. So they break down every four years. That means there's this fear factor. Oh, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, new spreads. Yeah. Oh, we better have insurance cover plan. So if this they did the job this- properly, no one would have an insurance cover plan because they would need to. So the whole thing has been a driven driving economic consumption. Yeah. So driving resource consumption. Now we're reaching a point where we're talking about demand reduction in all aspects of our lives, wherever possible. Some of it's been imposed upon us. Some of it's now a potentially jingoistic political decision. Some of it, you know, an ethical consideration. But it's only really just entering the public sphere. And we still haven't begun to reckon with a, a thing like GDP yet. And that's the big picture stuff which is all going to be bad news. If we reduce demand, GDP drops, even though we're consuming better, more ethically. Oh, man. That's because GDP is broken, though. You can't, we cannot continue using GDP as a measure of anything because where is, where is thriving, where is a thriving humanity in GDP? It doesn't exist. It's not comparable. You can't have the two together. And it is the problem. That's in it. I think we're heading into a whole other topic here. And it is Friday afternoon. So back to uh, education, better training, and empathy—key themes today. Anything, anything else I've missed, Duncan? Sorry, Lord. You know, I, th- I think what I'm taking from this is there's a. And we had this conversation with Leah and, and Joe last week. There's a big potential for us to make our existing gas systems more efficient. That hasn't been discussed in the way I think it should be because we're just talk- we're just focused on get heat pumps in. But there is that transition. T- that's what I took from last week's conversation. I suppose. How do we do that? But what's what's the questions that we should be asking 
I mean, it's starting to be talked about, isn't it? So that's a good thing. It's starting to get talked about. I mean, obviously, Joe talks about it. Uh, Michael Ebrock and I have been chatting about it. Um, Sarah Holmes, who I do sort of work with, have been chatting about it. So um, I have, I mean, the BBC do ring me up every now and then, and, and, and so do some of the environmental editors chat with me, and that they're aware of it. I think people are becoming a lot more, obviously, Octopus Energy um, are doing their little... Um, uh, game thing aren't they so i think it's becoming uh increasing the, well the awareness is increasing and i think like i said earlier i think we're going to maybe see a few niche industries that are going to center around sort of optimizing what you've got because trust me not everyone's going to start rubbish I, mean, I know some very very big powerful advocates of heat pumps very big who sometimes get quite fanatical on their social media at the world's ending riding rights a bit like reading chicken licking or whatever that book was. Have they got a heat pump? No, they haven't. I know for a fact they haven't, and I know for a fact they've just had gas boilers installed as well. So not everyone's running out and buying heat pumps yet, trust me. But if they can put things in that are going to be efficient, yes, they will want that. They will want that. So there's going to be these niche industries about occupying. There'll be niche industries about... um, One of the problems I do see is once a customer does know a good engineer, so obviously I get quite, uh, you know, I'm known for knowing who the really good engineers are. So I've had you know, people like the Lord Mayor of London contact me. I've had people, high up people in Energy Systems Catapult, Energy Savings Trust. Guy knew he was the energy uh, special advisor to two of our energy ministers. I get all these people asking who's a good engineer. Once they know they've got a good one, do they want to pay him more? Hmm, don't know. <laughs> now, if you go to a lawyer, if you just want your average Joe solicitor, uh, and they say, this is what I charge per, per phone call or whatever, if you go to a QC that's very niche and you need that QC for whatever reason, you're prepared to pay the money. What I'm not seeing yet is people distinguishing the really good engineers, even though their brain is telling them there's not lots of people that can do this properly. So they know that, they, that they're very aware that there's only a small amount of people that can do this properly. They still haven't uh, increased their value yet. And that's very interesting. This is a social thing again. I think it is, but it's probably also tied to the fact that we don't trust our kit, right? So it might trust you as an engineer, but might not trust the rickety old boiler that's been on the wall as well. So there's like the risk factor there of, of oh, that. But if, you, if you're putting in a new heat pump system, for instance, so mm. if you're putting in a new heat pump system, they, they, they don't know why that really, really fantastic engineer is you know, a couple of grand more than, uh, well, they should know because yeah. they're, they're bloody yeah. brilliant. And yeah. you have to pay for that brilliance, like you would if you wanted a top QC to get you off or something or whatever. Yeah. You know, people have got to realise these are very, very important people with very valuable knowledge, and there's not many of them out there. I mean, um, we, yeah, we have these conversations all the time. Like uh, Alex and I, you know, we're not cheap, but we do good work. Yeah. But we have the luxury of an occupation where we can scale our input, like heating systems, heating systems, heating systems. Within reason, I know. But you can't just do a bit of it. You can't just do one room of a central heating system. Like We can do one section of a project, demonstrate its value, and then move on and scale up to make it a much bigger project. But if you're addressing heating systems, you can't do that. And I think potentially there's there's a piece to be done in the education of the, the world at large about the value of... Well, again, in addition to training and education and empathy, Optimization is the word that's come up again and again here. Mm. An optimization and what that means. An optimization is where you can deliver your value because if you're optimizing a heating system, it might cost more to put in, but your cost to run it and your cost to maintain it is likely to be mitigated. And that's a communication issue. Once yeah, once we can prove that with like monitoring of yeah. efficiency, then then people might start to realize the value of certain engineers. Yeah. Oh man, right, we're running on. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> man, I could do this for another hour, easy. I know, I know. It's so uh, fascinating, isn't but, it? It really is like fascinating. But I am, I have to go and pick up my two children and two friends of theirs now in five minutes and then suffer the wrath of having a house full of small, noisy people. Ooh, good luck. Oh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, well, that's been I, a real pleasure today. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Nathan. I've been looking forward to meeting you for um, a long time and I've been enjoying picking my way through your podcast back catalogue, um, which I'll continue to do. Um, yeah, I'm going to drop off, but it was a real pleasure and uh, enjoy. Mm, nice to meet you, Sarah. Yeah, you nice too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Take care, love.